Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, thank you for listening to Mortification of Spin. This is Todd Pruitt, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-hosts, Amy Bird and Carl Truman. Now, you may or may not know, but Carl, in his spare time, will write a book every once in a while. And uh, we actually did want to chat with him a little bit about a book that I actually have read most of. Not all of it, I'll be honest, but I have read most of it. And, Carl, you'll be happy to know, and I think relieved, that I kind of liked it. <laughs> At least what I, the bits I read, I liked. That means a lot to me. No, I'm, no. I'm touched by that. Well, it is entitled Between Wittenberg, or should I say Wittenberg? I was going to ask, because you know he says Wittenberg. Okay. Uh, it's entitled Between Wittenberg and Geneva, <laughs> Lutheran and Reformed Theology in Conversation. And it is by our own Carl Truman and Robert Kolb, who is a, a Lutheran scholar. And the premise of the book is is really quite helpful. I found it very interesting. Uh, this dialogue between a a Reformed scholar and a Lutheran scholar, um, giving you good insight into the bits we agree on and and the bits we we don't agree on. Why is it that uh, the, the the Reformation kind of divided into those two schools, the Protestant uh, school, uh, the Presbyterian, if you will, the Presbyterian school and and uh, uh, the, the the Lutheran school? And so they address uh, a number of different. Uh, topics in the book from uh, the view of, of, of Scripture, um, the view of election, which is, I think, to some people's surprise still, interestingly enough, uh, uh, sort of a surprise that, that, that Lutherans and Presbyterians believe different things about election, but of course we do. Um, uh, justification, of course, the, the difference in, in baptism and the Lord's Supper, the sacraments, etc. So, um, Carl, uh, tell us a little bit about the conversations that, that you and Dr. Kolb had going in uh, to this book, what kind of generated it, and I, I've got a couple questions after that, but uh, tell us kind of the, the genesis of the book. Well, the origin of the book lies in a conversation I had with Dave Nelson, who's one of the commissioning editors at Baker Bookhouse. Uh, he approached me a few years ago and said that if ever I had a project that, that Baker might be interested in to let him know, and we started talking, and I said that one thing that I would be interested in doing would be producing a book with a Lutheran theologian that uh, looked at the differences between the Reformed and the Lutherans on, on key issues, really as, as part of trying to promote and model a healthy ecumenical dialogue. It struck me as interesting, still does strike me as interesting, that uh, Presbyterians in Reform seem to have this, I don't know, deep desire to be Southern Baptists. Uh, you know, th th they tend to see the, the dialogue partners as being evangelicals. Well, there's actually a, a huge confessional conservative Protestant tradition out there, Lutheran, confessional Lutheranism, that we by and large ignore for, for various reasons, some historical, some theological. And I was interested in producing a book that addressed the differences between the two confessional uh, approaches to Christianity, helped students at Westminster Seminary, where I, I then worked, 
Can I say that again? Westminster, where I then worked. It's, it's great to use the past <laughs> tense, actually. Uh, 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 to realise why they weren't evangelicals or why the tradition they was being, being taught was not, strictly speaking, evangelicalism, but right. reformed, and why that was also different to the Lutheran tradition. Often right. having taught Reformation, students would refer in my presence to Lutheran as, be, Luther as being reformed, and I have to say, well, you know, yeah. Luther himself would not have liked right. that characterization. So Dave uh, said, well, is there anybody you'd be interested in doing this with? And I said, well, my dream would be Robert Kolb. The, the great Lutheran scholar taught for many years part of the year in America at Concordia Theological Seminary in uh, St. Louis and, and part of the year at a, a Lutheran seminary in Germany. Bob, I think, is – well, I would say that Bob is, is one of the, the two greatest living English-language Luther scholars. There is the other one being Tim Wengert, uh, another old friend of mine. Uh, and the idea of doing a book with Bob was just uh, a thrill to me. I mean, yeah. Bob's a kind of a, a scholarly hero, if right. you like. Right. So Dave went away, and I think within 72 hours, I got a, an email or a call back from him saying he chatted to Bob, and Bob was very, very keen to do this. So we started to work. We, we uh, put together, first of all, agreed a list of topics that we wanted to address, and then we independently wrote on each of those topics, and then correlated uh, sections together so that the, the book consists of a series of chapters and mm -hmm. Bob and I wrote or both wrote every single one of the chapters. Yeah. The chapter has a Lutheran section, a Reformed right. section. Uh, we specifically wanted to do something beyond the theological as well. We wanted a model how two theologians from different traditions – could engage respectfully with each other and affectionately, even on points where we disagreed. Uh, I, I find the whole, we talked about this many times, but the whole Twitterverse, the whole, right. the, the complete lack of respect that is now routinely shown mm -hmm. for other Christians in online theological debate, it, it sort of disgusts me in many yeah. ways. And we yeah. specifically wanted to to try to to model uh, a way of approaching ecumenical mm -hmm. dialogue and, yeah. and Christian Yeah, well, and it's interesting, too, because you're very upfront about your differences, let's say, on the sacraments. Yeah. Um, and you can be clear about that and base your argument on the differences and likenesses. But then in the broader evangelicalism, a lot of the time, it's, it's usually even less important issues that people get so fired up and angry about and yet we you see kind of a smoothing over of the differences in something like baptism um within evangelicalism and it's mm -hmm. not really talked about very much and that's not a very big deal and so you guys are holding it up saying this is a really big deal yeah yeah and we're, we're trying that there of course to recapture something of the the dynamics and the priorities of the reformation Mm -hmm. I mean, I've said this number of times over the years and been heavily criticized for saying, hey, you know that uh, Martin Luther would not have regarded Zwinglians as being really very Christians. Mm -hmm. Certainly wouldn't regard them as being very good Christians. Right. Uh, that Martin Luther would, would not have uh, been willing to uh, 
join hands with Baptists. And that's not to say that's a good thing that Luther wouldn't do that, but there is something ironic about the way Martin Luther has been co-opted as an evangelical hero, right, right. where really the evangelicals for him would have fallen into the category of, I love this word, schwärmer, uh-huh. uh, crazy people uh-huh. in yeah. the 16th century. And it's not to say we want to go back to the 16th century, but it is to say if we want to say that we are Protestants who stand in the tradition of the Reformation, then there are certain emphases that we have to acknowledge and accept within our own tradition. And if we choose to disagree and differ with them, we should not marginalize or minimize those right. things. We should openly acknowledge them and, that's, and address And that's, I think, them. a more respectful dialogue yeah. then. Yeah. You know, th- this book would have been really helpful about six years ago when the PCA uh, was was being infected with a really bad theology of sanctification that was characterized by the primary progenitor of this movement as 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 kind of you know lutheran and of course you know what i'm talking about a yeah. f- former yeah. pca pastor um out of florida um who who latched on to, to gerhard ford for instance and began uh to to propagate an understanding of of sanctification which basically was was not sanctification, but 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 pawned off as as kind of a faithful Lutheran, and of course because people thought, well, well, Luther and 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 the Reformed, you know, it's all the same thing, you know, Protestantism, um, and it of course turned out to be very very unhelpful and a, and a bit of a, a debacle. But a, but this book would have been great <laughs> at that time to help illustrate that the difference is is not small. My question is also there. You would say that what was being passed off. Uh, a, a few years ago out of out of our, our from this man in Florida would have been probably unrecognizable to Luther as far as a doctrine of sanctification. Yeah, well, we've, we've talked about that before. I think mm-hmm. part of the problem there is that the, the reading of Luther by a lot of non-Lutherans mm-hmm. and even by some Lutherans mm-hmm. is is very selective and tends to focus on works prior to 1525. Uh, 1527, 1528, there's a very significant event in Lutheranism, the, the, the parish visitation, when teams uh, representing both the church and the civil magistrate travel through the parishes of electoral Saxony and bring a report back to uh, Wittenberg uh, on how the Reformation is progressing. And one of the things that comes through very clearly in the reports and the parish visitation is, to quote Luther himself, the people live like irrational people. Pigs. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think Luther would have looked at the theology being propagated and said, yeah, that's irrational pig theology. Uh, I think the person that you're talking about, Luther would probably have characterized his ultimate behavior as mm-hmm. irrationally swinish. Right. I don't think there's any debate about that now. Yeah, yeah. So part of the problem there is it's not even a Lutheran versus reform thing. I think right. that's a, a misreading of Lutheranism. So you have to remember the Reformation was a work in progress right. and it's it's – it's throwing up questions and challenges that it then has to produce new answers mm-hmm. to. The questions mm-hmm. have never been asked before mm-hmm. in the right. history of the church. And so it's you can't simply grab hold of, let's say, a 1520 treatise like the Freedom of the Christian Man and say that's normative for Lutheranism. Right. You have to look at the really at the at the Book of Concord. You have to mm-hmm. look at the, the the church's settled confessional position. In order to understand, yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. Is talk about the you sensing a need to write a book like this um, as you are a professor in a seminary and your students coming in. I mean, at this time when identity politics are so prevalent, um, it seems like 
you were saying that we're missing a confessional identity. And so even with uh, students coming to a reform seminary, like what did you notice about about that lack of confessional identity? Well, Bob and I talked about that as we were preparing the book, and I think both his experience and mine at seminary was similar on this front, and that is that students choose seminaries for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. Some will choose the seminary because they're committed to the confessional position of that seminary. Mm -hmm. Others will choose a seminary because it happens to be geographically close, or it happens to offer good scholarships or it happens to offer a flexibility in course delivery that, that, is, that is helpful to them mm-hmm. given the stage of life they happen to be at. Or so, a particular fa- faculty member. Or a particular yeah. faculty member, for example. So you'll end up with uh, a, a proportion, often a significant proportion of, of students in class who don't really understand, mm-hmm. A, the nature of confessionalism as a concept, and B, the specific confession to which the the seminary is committed. So you'll get a lot of evangelical students at a Mm -hmm. Lutheran or Reformed Mm -hmm. seminary who they just assume that because the seminary holds a high view of Scripture, therefore it it essentially stands where they stand. And what we wanted to do in this book was, at a minimum, teach students, no, that isn't the case. There is such a thing as confessional Christianity. It has various forms. but also to try to encourage, and, and Bob does this very well in his, he wrote the, the conclusion, uh, to try to challenge the students to love their confession. Mm-hmm. Find a place to stand and love where you stand. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this. After completing the book and, and whether or not your ideas changed on this, and, and this is going to be a maybe an unfair question, but I want to see if you would take a stab at it. What's the most important agreement between the Reformed and the Lutheran? And, and what is the most important disagreement between the Reformed yeah, and the Lutheran? That's a very good question. I mean, I mean there's a huge amount we agree. Right. And, of course, the, you could say that about the Reformation and the pre-Reformation church. In some ways, the Reformation does not overthrow the whole of medieval Christianity. Right. It's essentially a corrective on a fairly narrow front mm-hmm. of doctrine. So, you know, one could say the most important point of agreement is the classical doctrine of the Trinity, right. for example. I, I think if, if one wanted to move beyond the realm of what we might call mere Catholic orthodoxy to specific Protestant mm-hmm. contributions to the church, one would have to say justification right. by grace through faith. The Reformed are heavily indebted to the insights of Luther and Melanchthon mm-hmm. on that specific point. The law gospel dialectic, mm-hmm. as it's called. You know, Asinus, in the uh, introduction to his commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism, basically says, if you don't get the contrast between the law and the gospel, you will understand nothing mm-hmm. in Scripture. Mm-hmm. That, you know, Asinus is a Reformed theologian. That right. could have been written by Luther. Right. So, very clearly. Uh, I think the most important point of disagreement is the one that historically led to the rupture between the two churches, and that is the Lord's Supper Mm. uh, and the question of whether the whole Christ, divine and human, is present in, with, and under the elements of bread and wine. And there, I think, the the disagreement, uh, it touches on other doctrinal places as well. Christology, the the relationship of the two natures in Christ, Mm -hmm. is lurking very much in the background of that question. But I think uh, that's the most important difference. But even there, I think the two traditions can learn from each other. And one of the things that that struck me is when I read Luther's small catechism, 
on paper, there's nothing I can disagree with, really, in his view of the Lord's Supper there, that his emphasis on it as a reform would say a means of grace, right. that it actually does something when you take the Lord's Supper. That's an important emphasis that I think has been neglected in in evangelical and, and Baptist circles that, that sort of tend, not not exclusive, but tend on the whole towards a, a kind of Zinglian memorialism. Without a doubt. Uh, I think the Calvinist tradition is much closer to Luther on that. And reading Luther on the sacrament, certainly his earlier writings from the, the early 1520s when he's emphasizing the power of the promise that's attached to the elements. So that's very helpful stuff for reform to read. But it remains the, I mean, that is the big right. dividing issue. Uh, I think it's led to a lot of uh, very, very passionate and often unhelpful rhetoric between the yeah. two communions. Uh, and I hope that what Bob and I do in this book is we we address that issue squarely, but without resorting to the kind of name-calling that, mm -hmm. that sadly has uh, marked Lutheran Reformed right. dialogue. The problem with Lutheran Reformed dialogue historically is the two groups tend to define themselves over against each other, mm -hmm. and that's never a good place to start for dialogue. It would, would, a, would a very historically formed conservative Lutheran, very much in the mold of the Book of Concord, would he or she feel comfortable receiving the Lord's Supper in a Presbyterian church? I would say not. I mean, you might vary from person to person. But, uh, I, I mean, I remember sitting on a panel some years ago with Carl Beckwith, mm -hmm. a friend of mine, teaches at Beeson, actually provided a very kind commendation for the book. And Carl was asked that question and said, no, yeah. he would not. Okay, so let me ask you this. Yes. Yeah. Would you feel comfortable receiving the Lord's Supper in a Lutheran church. It's interesting you ask me that. I was assumed that I would not be allowed to. And earlier this year, I preached at a Lutheran church in Roanoke, Virginia. Mm -hmm. And it was the Lord's Supper that morning. And I asked the pastor, mm -hmm. I said, you know, do you want me, I'm, I'm preaching, but do you want me to sit back from the Lord's Supper or, or, or may I take the Lord's Supper? And he said, you, you can take the Lord's mm -hmm. Supper here. Interesting. Uh, do you think that so, depends on the... I suspect, the leadership in the church, I suspect the it depends very much on the denomination and the mm -hmm. leadership. Uh, this was a conservative, it wasn't the Missouri Synod, but it was a conservative Lutheran mm -hmm. tradition. I suspect if certainly if you're at a Wisconsin Synod church, they're the very, very hard sure. Lutherans. Probably mm -hmm. you would not mm -hmm. be welcome uh -huh. as a Reformed yeah. person there. But you have to see it from the from the Lutheran perspective right. in some ways, in that it's they don't want to be handing out the Lord's body to those who <laughs> don't, don't discern believe that it's right. Right. Yeah. right. It's not pastorally kind to do that. Right. Mm -hmm. So had that Lutheran pastor said to me, we would rather you didn't take the Lord's Supper. You wouldn't have been offended. I would not have been offended right. any more than if I'm at a Baptist church and, and was preaching and they said, well, we, practice, we practice closed communion. You have to be a member of a Baptist right. church to mm -hmm. take communion. I wouldn't be offended mm -hmm. there. Uh, it seems to me good that churches take their confession seriously. Yeah. Nothing wrong with being consistent and taking your confession seriously. Yeah, yeah for sure. And and now now the picture on the front of the book here, interestingly, has uh, Zwingli uh, giving an obscene an obscene gesture at Luther. Is is that correct? It it's certainly well. It's it's not an obscene gesture. Oh, okay. Let's let's just clarify this, listeners. It's the two fingers, not the one uh -huh. finger. Uh, okay. Two fingers is a traditional uh, British uh, 
a way of abusing people. I believe it goes abusing back to the Battle people. of Agincourt, where when the French captured our longbowmen, uh-huh. they would chop off their fingers. Ah. So the, the English longbowmen would stand up ah. and wave their two oh, fingers around to the French story. to show they were still. I hope that's true. I hope it's true as well. The great thing in America is that as a British person, you can use the two fingers. Nobody you get knows. the full satisfaction right. and release from doing <laughs> that. No American they understands what you're doing, so you don't cause any offense. Yeah, they, yeah. yeah, they just think you're waving at them like the queen. I like it. Also, also, is it true that that during the disputation between luther and zwingli over the lord's supper luther really did right across the table yeah you know this is my body it's there are a couple of accounts of the the marbo colloquy 1529 when luther and zwingli were were debating this issue at the at the, the castle in marburg mm-hmm. and there is a a dramatic moment when luther throws back the uh, in the accounts he throws back the the napkin or the tablecloth and reveals uh, that he's written on the table in chalk, hoc est corpus meum, this is my body. And that's where he's, that's where he will, will stand on that. The two accounts are kind of funny because the Lutheran account presents, of course, Luther as the hero. Of course. Uh, the Reformed account presents him as the villain. There's, there's right. a bit where, where Zwingli cries, and in the one account it says, you know, <laughs> Zwingli cries, his heart broken, that, you know, Christendom's being torn in two. And yeah. in the other account it says, you know, Zwingli cries, crocodile tears, you know, secretly satisfied that his scheme to destroy Christendom is now bearing fruit. So oh my it was goodness. pretty vicious from the, from the get-go. Bob and I have really tried to pour oil on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> this book may be... The, the the instrument for 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 the for the unification of of the Protestant Church, yeah, it could well be. It was funny when we we did it, and that I, I was, I had no problem doing. It. I thought this is great. Bob said to me, he said, "I expect to get real heat in some Lutheran oh, quarters really? for even engaging a Reformed person in this way." I had no worries that anybody in the Reformed world would would, would think uh-huh. that way, but Bob said in the Lutheran world he would he was expecting to get heat, but apparently not. We've both been very very gratified oh, by the, the from some unexpected quarters as well. Yeah. Well, and and again, the 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 dialogue makes it clear where the disagreements are between uh, two men who take their confessions uh seriously and so it would be it would be very hard to maintain an accusation of some kind of a compromise right that's yeah not what's happening here now okay okay so so we've been on the lord so i do have to ask you this should do you believe that a a, a protestant um and let me get more specific a reformed protestant presbyterian should uh if if they find themselves at a you know, roman catholic wedding or something like that should they receive the Lord's Supper? Uh, I've been I've been in exactly that uh-huh, position. Uh, we were at a wedding uh, in January, Katrina and I, this year, where there was uh, uh, a mass. It was actually a Latin mass. I was there for the the full hour long yeah, heavy duty Latin. <laughs> actually, I found it rather beautiful. Just from an aesthetic, I have to well, clarify that from an aesthetic perspective. Sure. It was birds mass for four voices, which is a spectacular piece of of polyphonic music um the answer to that i think is no and again i would root it partly in ecclesiology yeah. uh, that uh, i don't think the the roman catholic church would be happy about no, protestants yeah. simply turning up to take communion uh, and you know the two halves of my brain the theological half of my brain objects to the uh, theology of the mass and the the respectful part of my brain also wants to respect the context in which I find mm-hmm. myself. And I think it would be disrespectful to my Catholic friends for me as a Protestant to to join the line to to take the elements. So I would say 
say no on so, on both of those. So to points. to be clear on this, then, um, what is, is there a substantive difference between the Lutheran view of the Lord's Supper? And the Roman Catholic view of the Lord's yeah. Supper. Now, now I'm not talking about the full mass, but yeah. but, but of 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 the elements itself, yeah. is is Lutheranism basically still transubstantiation in their view? No, again, it's 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 a somewhat subtle point in some ways. Luther never really had the problems with transubstantiation that the Reformed. Right. You know, in in Babylonian captivity of the Church, 1520, he sees the problem with transubstantiation as not that that Jesus is there, mm-hmm. but that the bread is absent. For Luther, the, the biblical text, see, this bread is my body. He would say, there's bread and there's body. You need to have both the bread and the body there. Uh, secondly, he doesn't like the way that Catholicism argues for the presence of Christ in terms of transubstantiation. It relates to the first point. He doesn't think the bread turns into the body and blood. So that's where you get that language of, the Lord of, Jesus of Christ. over, in, and in around. And yeah. yeah. But the interesting thing is that uh, there, there are always, well, certainly over the last hundred years, been far more ecumenical contact between Lutherans and Roman Catholics and between Lutherans and Reformed, certainly hmm. on the conservative front. And I think the reason for that is that when push comes to shove, the Lutherans don't like the Reformed because they deny the real presence. And Catholicism, for all of the problems that Lutherans would see uh, in Catholicism, mm-hmm. Roman Catholicism, it does affirm the real presence. And that is seen as, as better than what the Reformed do. That's odd from a Reformed perspective, but I think that that reflects their position and mm-hmm. i was the token reformed guy at a conference a couple of years ago in uh, concordia seminary in fort wayne and got into conversation with a couple of the faculty there who were involved in ecumenical dialogue with with roman catholics and it was interesting to me that it had never crossed their mind really to be in, in ecumenical discussion with reformed even though i would say hmm. there's a whole lot more in common in terms of the soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, before we wrap up, I want to ask one more question. Um, you mentioned just having conversations like this as an opportunity to learn. So I just wanted to know if, you know, if you learned anything being able to participate yeah. with Robert Kolb um, in writing this book. I, I think uh, I've learned a lot from Bob over the years about Luther. But I think the process of this writing this book helped me understand uh, better how to engage respectfully with those with whom I disagree. Uh, the, the, the Reformed tradition, particularly the Reformed tradition uh, uh, to which I belong, often has a rather combative edge to it. And, and combat can be good and necessary mm-hmm. at times, but it can become a way of life. And one of the things that I really enjoyed doing with Bob was from the get-go, both of us, we had respect for each other's writings and respect for each other's Christian faith. So there was never any need to engage in any combative stuff. And I think I learned a lot. I mean, Bob is Bob's in his late 70s. He's considerably old. I mean, he's, to me, he's a sort of, I was like a, a scholarly father in the faith. And just learning from Bob how to be gentle, relaxed and respectful with those with whom we disagree was for me very, very helpful. So as much as I learned about Lutheran theology, I think I learned even more about engaging mm-hmm. with, with somebody from another Christian. 
That's really good. And, and, and you pick that up immediately when you begin to read the book. For me, uh, whether it helps anybody, you know, but, but for me, just in understanding how to, um, how to disagree with, with grace and, and, and actually understanding the position of your, of your dialogue partner instead of caricaturing it. So this is a, a really great model for how to do that well. And I would also say for the, um, for the Presbyterian lay person, this is not a big, thick, scary book. It's written by two scholars, but it's accessible. Um, I, I, it truly is accessible. And, and for the Presbyterian lay person, if, if you want to know what Presbyterianism, the, the Reformed tradition, really does affirm about Scripture, the Lord's Supper, um, ecclesiology, etc., this is a really helpful book. Um, along those lines, I would encourage you to add it to your library. Again, it's called Between Wittenberg or Wittenberg and Geneva, Lutheran and Reformed Theology in Conversation by Colbin Truman. It's uh, published by Baker uh, Bookhouse, which um, uh, publishes wonderful, wonderful books. And uh, we're very thankful for their generosity in getting us a copy. And uh, there are no pictures in it. There are no pictures in it. It's an interesting one on the cover, though. But there is a good there is a good picture on the cover. I will also say um, that um, Amy is currently working on a book with Joyce Meyer, um, the two in in dialogue, and um, I think they're still I'm working, learning a lot. Yeah, I, I think they're still working on a title, but they're going to talk about the areas where they agree and the areas where they disagree. But we're looking forward to that, Amy and and Joyce. But uh, we are so thankful that uh, you wouldn't believe how funny Amy thought that was. Um, We are looking forward to uh, being with you next time. We're really thankful that you joined us today for Mortification of Spin. We hope that Carl Truman will keep writing books in his spare time. And if you would like a copy of Between Wittenberg and Geneva, you can go to our website, mortificationofspin.org and register for a free copy and uh, you'll enjoy it if you get your hands um, on this book also please be reminded that we are a listener supported podcast Uh, we would love for you to prayerfully consider how you might make a contribution uh, to the alliance of confessing evangelicals so that they can continue uh, the work that they do in encouraging and supporting churches uh, through podcasts like this one and so we hope that you'll consider that and until next time This is Todd Pruitt for Amy Bird and Carl Truman signing off (laughs) for the mortification of spin. We'll talk to you next time. When I was younger, so much younger than today, I never needed anybody's help in any way. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... Pregret. Pregret. Well, I mean, I guess it would have something to do with regretting something before you do it but i don't know how to <laughs> yeah, how yeah, i would apply yeah. that yeah. you don't know how to apply it's that pi- no. i would say it's a pity we didn't pre-gret inviting amy to join the podcast <laughs> we might have avoided creating oh, okay, a monster. so that's how it would you're work. not really using it's it pre-gretable. Uh-huh. pre-gretable we should have seen it coming we i like that word i think i'm going to start using it i could it. use that i know that's, that's a fun one we'll talk to you next time on mortification of spin
Ready? I guess I'll open since I'm asking the questions. Wow. Pretty assertive, huh? No? <laughs> Do you want to open? By the way, you are a very <laughs> good closer, She's taking Todd. over, you know. I really we? am. You're, you're really good at promoting people's books at the end of a podcast. I am so good. I just wanted to say that. I Something nice about Todd for I the day. I am good. Mm-hmm. And people like you. In so Some many ways. It's Stockholm <sighs> Syndrome. She treats you like dirt. Just want to make sure that he's still, you know, under my manipulation. Yeah, you'll both be picking on me because that's how it works. <laughs> <laughs> bring me on to pick on you. I don't like Carl either. <laughs>